Well, good morning. We are continuing in the book of Habakkuk this morning, and I just want to give a quick recap. I know it's a short book, um, but it's been a couple of weeks since we were talking about Habakkuk, and so I just want to give you a quick recap so we can get back in the flow of things and what is happening. Happening. Um, one of the things to remember is that Habakkuk is an unusual book um, because there's, this is only a back and forth between God and Habakkuk. That's the entirety of the book. Now, usually when we talk about a prophet, he goes and tells everybody else um, what God has told him. But in Habakkuk, we don't see that. Um, obviously, he told somebody because we're still reading it today. So even after the book, he told somebody or recorded it. But he doesn't do that in the book. And so we would expect that. Um, the book begins with Habakkuk looking around both at Judah and the world around them and seeing violence and injustice and corruption all over the place. And so he asks God, God, why are you letting this happen? How long is it going to be like this? When are you going to step in? When are you going to intervene? Um, sort of almost implying that God is ignoring it, or he's asleep, or he's not paying attention, or he doesn't care. And then we got God's response by saying, I am doing something. In fact, I am already doing something, and it's going to be bigger and greater than you can even understand. And so God is, says he is sending the Babylonians, which we will see also known as the Chaldeans, to deal with the injustice that he sees in Judah. So in that, we also got a description a couple of weeks ago how violent um, the Babylonians are, and we're going to see that actually again today. Um, and that's where we're picking it up this morning. There's been one kind of question from Habakkuk and one answer from God. And so this morning we're going to see Habakkuk go back with another series of questions. And so we're going to see his reaction to God using essentially an evil nation to bring judgment on God's people. And so it consists of a series of questions. So um, I warned you about this the first week, and I'm going to warn you again this week. This week is all questions. Um, and so as much as I want to give you the answers, we're gonna, I'm not going to try to answer the questions. I'm going to let God answer it next week. So we're going to see what God's answers are and follow them next week. So you're going to feel a little bit like I'm leaving you hanging, but I still think there's a lot we can learn just from the way that Habakkuk asks his questions. And so we're going to start in, chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 1. Um, if you want to follow along, um, it's page 832 in the Bible that's in front of you in the pew. Um, and just as we're here, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, um, that pew Bible is yours. Just feel free to take it home, read it, uh, make it yours, write your name in it. We're happy to give you a Bible. Um, you can also follow along through our app. Um, you can go to the Sunday service part, and then it'll get you to um, the scriptures there as well. So we're going to read um, verse 12 through the first verse of chapter 2. And it says, this is um, Habakkuk responding to God. It says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Treacherous. Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook. They catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. And that is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? 
I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. And so this morning, we're going to work through these verses, and our theme for this morning is justice, because that's really what Habakkuk is asking about, right? Initially, he wanted justice for those inside of Judah who are violating God's laws. And now, he's struggling to understand how God is going to bring about that justice. So God is like, I'm going to do it, but he doesn't really like the way that God is going to bring it about. And so I think this is something that we can identify with, because if we're honest, We want justice on our terms, right? We want it for those we think deserve to be judged or corrected or argued against or whatever it is, and we want it, right, like yesterday is usually when we want it, right? We want something to happen to them yesterday is usually how we do it. And so we've talked about all along this way, this book also doesn't reveal weak faith from Habakkuk, right? He isn't just whining and he doesn't have a good understanding of who God is, Because his first questions came out of the struggle to reconcile what he believed to be true about God and what he was experiencing in real life. And today we're seeing something similar. Habakkuk isn't actually disputing that God can or should execute justice. He's just disputing how he's doing it, how he's bringing it about. And so we see his view of God actually in these opening verses and how he talks to and about God. And so the way that he talks about God in the beginning in verse 12 is a reminder to us that we know that justice ultimately comes from God. And so look at the way God, Habakkuk describes God in verse 12, right? He calls him eternal. He calls him holy. He calls him Lord. He calls him my rock. He says, Lord, my God, right? These aren't terms of someone who is doubting or confused about who God is, right? This is someone who knows who God is and is trying to understand what he's doing. And so we're going to take a look at each of these because I think they remind us of who God is um, and why he is actually the only one who can execute justice and then he can do it whenever and however he decides to do it. So first, he is eternal, right? If you've been around church or know anything about God, this is not a surprise to you that God is eternal, that he's been around forever. He always has been and always will be. There's nothing that came before God. That means that everything that exists, exists because of God. He brought all of this about. And so it also reminds us that he doesn't change. He is the God of truth. He is the God of justice. He is the God of grace. He's the sovereign creator. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't lose focus. He is always acting according to his nature all day, every day, nonstop. And so we can also compare this to God's people, who Habakkuk is included in, who could trace their roots all the way back to Abraham. So even a people who has been around for centuries are young and new compared to the eternity of God. Wouldn't it be nice if you were like centuries old and you were considered young, right? Well, that would be good, right? Some of you are not that far from a century, actually, now that I look around and see who's here. So good job on that. But we can also compare God to the Babylonians who God is using to bring justice about because they are actually brand new on the scene. So a couple of weeks ago, we actually went through all of the things that we saw that they came into power. And so they have just recently come into power. And so compared to God and what, who he is in his eternity, the Babylonians are just a blip on the radar, a drop in the bucket. But how does God being eternal apply to justice? Well, if he is eternal, and he has been forever, and he always is forever, and everything happened because of him, and he is the sovereign creator, 
then who else has the right to execute justice than the one who has been here longer than anybody else and who has created everything that exists, right? He knows how things are supposed to be. He knows how they're supposed to happen. He knows how people are supposed to act, how we're supposed to treat each other, how we're supposed to live. So he is actually the only one who can consistently apply justice across all times and all cultures, meaning no matter what period of history you live in and no matter what country or nation you live in at that time, he understands how to execute justice fairly and equally across all of those things. Next, we see him call him my holy one. And we often talk about God being holy or pure or perfect or without sin or without blemish. And to help us understand that a little bit more, we're actually going to pull in verse 13, um, at the beginning of verse 13, that says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Now, this doesn't mean that God never sees evil, he never sees sin, or that, like, if you're on the off chance that you are sinning, that God just, like, turns his face away so he doesn't see it, and he doesn't pretend like it didn't happen. That's not what this is saying, right? It doesn't say he never sees it. it what it's talking about is, he doesn't condone it, he doesn't support it, and all the evil will ultimately receive its punishment. That's what it means when it says that. So we also, I just want you to think about at this time what's happening with the Israelites. So if you know anything about this, the Israelites have all of these rules and all of these rituals and all these regulations of how to be essentially holy so that they can be in the presence of God, right? If I lie to my neighbor, there's a certain sacrifice I have to make to atone for that so that I can go and worship at the temple. If I steal your donkey or if I do something else, there's other sacrifices I have to make. And so in the daily life of the Israelites, there's all these rules and regulations for how to be holy, to be in the presence of God. And so this is always on their mind. Now, we don't have to do that as much, and we'll get to that in a minute. But in addition to just everybody having to do that, the priests have an additional set of rules that they have to go through so that they can be cleansed and without sin, technically, before they go into the presence of God or bad things happen to them, right? It doesn't end well um, when you go against what God has asked you to do. And so in this time, when they think about God being holy, they have all of these rules and regulations and rituals that they do on a daily basis just to be able to be in his presence, right? And so they're thinking about this thing of God being holy and that he can't look on sin because I have to do all of these things before I can even go to the temple. I have to do all of these things before I can, technically we would do all those before we came to church. And if you didn't, like we'd have to stop you at the door and say, hey, did you make this sacrifice because we saw what you did? No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're not going to do that, but we'll get to that part now, right? They had all of the rituals. But the good news for us is we no longer have all of these rules and rituals to go before God, right? The good news for us is that was changed through Jesus. He was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin so that our sins could be paid for and that we could be in the presence of God. We could be in right standing and in a right relationship with him. So as we believe in him and trust that he took our place and then his sacrifice, his death, was sufficient to cover our sins before God, we are declared holy before him and we can be in his presence. Right? That's the good news for us, that we don't have to do all of those things because Jesus has already done those for him. And so we trust in him so that we can be in his presence. But God's holiness leads to justice, I think, that is pure, that is unbiased, that is consistent, 
that is fair, and that is loving. So only he can do have justice that is unbiased across all things. Now, as much as you may think you're unbiased, we're actually not when it really comes down to it. We all have things that we see or that we hear that we know that kind of influence the way we think and the way we see the world. But he is the only one in his holiness who is able to do that outside of that. And then we have a phrase that says, you will not die. And so if you're reading a different translation, it may, it will either say, we will not die, or it will have a note that says, um, traditionally in Hebrew, this says, we will not die. And so I want to talk about this just for a second, because I think both of those can be important. And so if it says, you will not die, right, it's talking about God, he's holy, he will not die. It's just a reiteration that God is eternal. He's not going to die, he's not going anywhere, um, he's going to be around forever. But if, it's me, if it says, we will not die, then it's talking about the Israelites. And so in this case, it would be Habakkuk recalling that God has made a promise to the Israelites. And so the promises throughout the Old Testament sound a little something like this. If you follow me and you obey my commands, everything's going to go well with you. I'll send you to the promised land. You'll have everything you need. I'll give you favor. I'll give you blessing. I'll heal your sick. It'll be an amazing experience. But if you don't, and you don't follow my commands, and you don't listen to me, and you fall away, and you chase after other gods, and you break all of my laws, then I will punish you. And usually that is exile and being conquered by another um, country or nation. But even after all of those, he will say, Yes, I will conquer you and I will scatter you on the face of the earth is a lot of times what he says. But even with that, there's always at the end these verses that say, but I won't completely destroy you. There will always be a remnant of holy people that I will bring back, that I will restore. And so if that is what Habakkuk is talking about, then it's a reminder that even if the Israelites get conquered, even if they get scattered across the face of the earth, even if the Babylonians come and destroy them and everything, the temple and everything that's there, they will not be wiped off of the face of the earth. They will not die. There will still be a remnant of God's people because of God's promise to them. So God's call is for justice and correction not to eliminate the Israelites and wipe them off the face of the earth. We're going to come back to that at the end, but I think that's an important concept for us to understand is God's justice, especially for those who follow him, isn't punishment. It's correction to remind us to follow him, to trust in him, to grow in our faith. That's what it's always for. Then he calls him his rock, right? It's the foundation that everything is built on, that justice and righteousness are built on God. And so essentially, the law and the standard setter for all thoughts and all actions and how they should be judged and held accountable and all of those things are built on the foundation of who God is. And then he talks about and acknowledges, right? You appointed them. You destined them to do this. So in that, again, he's acknowledged that God is sovereign. He is in control. And this is something you'll see and hear again and again in the book of Habakkuk, right? If God is sovereign and he's just, then he can bring about that justice or that judgment however he chooses. So if he appointed and destined the Babylonians to conquer them, he can do that because he is sovereign, he is just, he is doing what is good for his people, even though they may not understand it in the moment. 
And then after he opens with these phrases about God, he then moves on to his main complaint. And what I want us to understand here is that, and, and this is something I worked through over, over the last week is, we often think of justice for other people, right? Or for others that need to be judged or corrected. But justice isn't just for other people, right? It's not just out there. It's also for us, right? We also need justice. We also make mistakes. We also need God's correction. And so we're going to look at that and how we see that because uh, the point I have here is we think justice is for others or we want justice for other people. And we see that in the, the, the verses right here. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? And so here's Habakkuk's main complaint. If you're eternal, if you're holy, if you're just, then how can you use somebody who is more wicked to judge somebody who is less wicked? Right? How can you, like, sure, we have our issues as Israelites, as God's people, we acknowledge that at the beginning, but we're not as bad as the Babylonians, right? How can you use them to judge us? And there's a couple of layers here, right? First, I think he's saying the Babylonians need to be judged. They need justice. They need to be corrected. They need to be stopped. So how, God, can you tolerate what they are doing, right? And how can it go further if you use them to bring justice on us, they can't be used for this. They're too evil, is basically what he's saying, right? And like week one, and I mentioned this earlier, I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit because I'm not answering this. I'm going to let God answer it next week. And so we'll actually answer that. God will answer that question of how he can actually use the Babylonians. And we're actually going to spend two weeks on his response because there's really a lot there. Um, the second part that, he's, that I think is here is that justice, essentially he's saying justice needs to happen to them first, Right? You can't use them to judge us. They're more wicked. And this concept behind this is something I think we struggle with almost on a daily basis as well. Right? This idea that justice is for other people or they need justice first. Right? We're fine when other people get what they deserve or what we think they deserve, but we don't want it quite as much when it comes to ourselves. Right? That guy was speeding and he cut me off, so he should get a ticket. I was speeding and I cut somebody off, but I was just having a bad day, so I should get a break, right? Those, that's the way we talk about it, right? Justice is for them, not necessarily for us. But what I think is actually happening behind all of this is Habakkuk is comparing the Israelites to the Babylonians. And I want to spend a little more time here because I think comparison is something we all do and, if we, and we all struggle with. And as I thought about it this week, um, comparison has... Uh, uh, kind of an ugly cousin called judging. Because when you judge somebody, what you're really just doing is you're comparing something you believe or something you think or yourself to someone else and basically saying, I'm better than them because they do this thing, right? And so comparison and judging, we're kind of looking at together. And so first we see Habakkuk comparing to the Babylonians in these next verses between Judah and Babylon. And we have three verses that explain that in verses 14 through 16. Where he says, you have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them up with a hook and catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. That's why they're glad and rejoice. That's why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. And so what Habakkuk is basically saying here is, 
the Babylonians are treating people like fish that have no value, right? I'm not a fisherman. I've only been fishing a couple of times, um, but like catching something with a hook and yanking it out of its home so that it can't live in the environment that you put it in is really not valuing the life of that object. And then we like just like lay them across in the grocery store and then we buy them and cook them and eat them. Um, we spent the last week in Seattle, and so one of the things that you go to see in Seattle is Pike's Market, where they have just fish laying all over the place, and then they throw them to each other just for fun, right? That's, that's what he's saying. The Babylonians are treating people like that. That's what they're doing. That's how evil they are. And then verse 15 sounds like he's describing fishing, but he's actually describing how the Babylonians treated their captives. So there are monuments of the Babylonians showing them transporting a line of captives, a line of slaves, a kind of line of people that they've conquered. And the way that they did that is they took a hook and they put it through the bottom lip of their captives and then they strung them together on a line. So imagine there's a hook in your lip that's connected to a hook in my lip and there's a rope between them. So if you slow down, it pulls my hook. And if somebody falls at the end, it pulls everybody's hook. This is what they were doing to their captives, right? And then when it talks about them in nets, right, they just gather them up a net and they just drag them along. There's other monuments that show the gods of the Babylonians essentially doing just this, carrying a net full of people to where they wanted to go. So when he's talking about this, he's not just like using a fishing metaphor and like, oh, they're sort of doing it like this. No, they were actually doing these things to people. And so that's why Habakkuk is saying, how can you use them? Look at all the things that they're doing. Look at how they're treating people. They treat them like fish, like they have no value. Right? How can you use them to do something to us? Because we're not as bad as them. They're way worse than us. Right? Look at what they're doing to people. But this comparison thing isn't new. It's been happening from the beginning. Right? If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are living there. Um, God essentially gives them one thing they can't do, right? You can basically do whatever you want, just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. Eventually, if you've been around church at all, you know that eventually they eat from that tree. And then God comes down one day to kind of hang out with Adam and Eve like he has done all along. They're hiding, and God begins by talking to Adam. And he says, Adam, like, why are you hiding? What happened? And he's like, well, um, we did eat of the fruit. And he's like, well, why did you do that? And what does Adam do? What's Adam's response? Well, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit, and so I ate it. So Adam says, well, yeah, sure, I ate it, but the woman you gave me, she took it first, and then she gave it to me, so she's worse than I am. And then he goes and talks to Eve, and he says, so Eve, what happened? And what does Eve do? She says, well, the serpent said that if I ate it, it would be okay. Right? And so she's saying, well, don't worry about what I'm doing. The serpent is worse than I am. So we have this comparison from the very beginning. of just saying, well, don't think about what I'm doing. It wasn't that bad compared to what the other person did. And so this concept of comparison and deflecting and all of these things are from the very beginning. And so the same thing is true for us. It didn't just disappear and it didn't go away. We are still doing this exact same thing. Right? This comparison and judging is something I think that we all do. And we may not think it has wicked intentions, um, but I think we need to be very careful in any of those things. 
Um, for example, one of the things for me, just for a church example, when I was growing up, um, I was taught that you don't wear jeans to church. Um, and so I'm a bit of a rebel, so I wondered this week if that's why I wear jeans now, is because for my whole childhood I was told I couldn't do it. Um, and so I, I'll obey the rules unless I think they're dumb, actually. So I don't understand that one. So maybe that's why I wear jeans. I don't know. Um, but I just thought about this week. So, um, but God, my, in my brain, it was like, God doesn't care what you wear to church. It doesn't matter to him. Now I get Sunday best and all of that thing and all of the traditions. I get it. Um, but what you wear to church doesn't really matter. That's not what makes you acceptable to God. That's not anything. And so for us, I don't care what people wear to church. And one of the reasons is, if somebody wants to hear about Jesus and they come into our building, I don't care what they're wearing. Right? If they're wearing shorts, if they're wearing t-shirts, if they're wearing whatever, if somebody wants to hear about Jesus and they want to hear enough to come to church, I don't care what they're wearing. Right? I'm glad they're here. I want them to hear the message of the gospel. And so it didn't matter to me. But we have all of these things that we say, and I, I, want, I thought about kind of giving you some examples of like ways that we judge or way that we compare ourselves to others. But I'm not actually going to give you the examples. What I'm going to give you is, I think, the beginning of the sentences for things that we tell ourselves when we're doing this. And so essentially, I'm going to give you the beginning of the sentence, and then you would, hopefully, you'll think about when you do this or how you do this, and you'll think about what the end of the sentence would be. For example, the, the beginning of the sentence would go something like, well, at least I'm not, and then you would fill in the blank for whatever thing you would think there. Or, I know better than to do this or to think this or whatever it is. Or how can they think that, whatever that is? Or how can they listen to this or that? Or how can they follow this or that? Or I would never do this, say that, do this thing. Right? The problem for us is, for the most part, most of the stuff we compare to or judge people for isn't actually biblical, right? It's personal preference or it's tradition or things that we've been taught, right? Like not wearing jeans to church, that's not in my Bible, right? It's not there, but it's tradition, and I get where it comes from, and I get why people want to do it, but it's not there. So my challenge to us is, first, we shouldn't judge. We shouldn't compare ourselves to others, either to make ourselves feel better or to a lot of times what we're doing, just what Adam and Eve did, is we're, we're, we're comparing and judging so that we can deflect away from actually looking what's going on with us, right? Well, I don't have to think about what I'm doing if I can say, well, look at all these people and what they're doing. They're way worse than me, so I'm okay. I don't have to worry about, I don't have to evaluate, I don't have to think about what's going on in my life. But I know that not judging and not comparing may be a bridge too far for most of us, myself included, um, I find myself doing it more often than I really want to. But if we do, it better be for a biblical reason. And it better be out of love. So when you find yourself comparing yourself to someone or judging someone or thinking about, well, they shouldn't be doing that, is the reason you think they shouldn't be doing that, is it a biblical reason? And if by some chance, because I know most of our judging and comparison actually happens in our brains and we don't ever actually say anything out loud. But on the off chance that you do say something out loud, you better be doing that because you love the other person and you want to keep them from sinning or from falling away from God. Right? It better be 
biblical and it better be out of love. That's the challenge. And I think that's very, very difficult. Because as I thought about all the things that I thought about people, because I, when you travel, you see a lot of interesting things out there in different cities and in airports, and we went hiking, and so you're just like, why, why would they do that? Why are they thinking that? And I was, as I thought back as the week, I was just like, none of those things really matter. They're not really important. They're definitely not biblical, right? And so I should just let it go. It doesn't, it's not important. But our brains kind of just want to do that automatically. So I think we need to be very careful when we compare to others, which is what Habakkuk is doing. You can't use the Babylonians. They're worse than us. You can't do that with them. They're worse than me. Or it's okay if I do this because it's not as bad as what they're doing, right? That's not what the call is. The call isn't to be better than somebody else, right? It's to be in a relationship with Christ and to be holy and to follow his commands. And so lastly, we see that we wait for justice. We see this in verse 17 where Habakkuk kind of wraps up his questions and he says, will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Basically saying, are you just going to let the Babylonians do this for as long as they want? Are you just going to let them take, conquer nation after nation after nation after nation until they've conquered the entire planet? You're just going to let them go? There's going to be no consequences for them? You're just going to let them do it? They're going to keep filling up their net with people and dragging them off and dragging them off and dragging them off. Right? And it's almost a rephrasing of his first question. If you remember back, it's like, how long is it going to be like this? But now it's, how long are you going to let them do this? And once again, he's waiting for God to step in. But actually, to step in and do it the way that Habakkuk thinks it should be done. Right? Because God is already stepping in, but the problem Habakkuk has is, well, I don't think that's the way you should do it. Right? He thinks he has a better idea than God does. And then we get to the first verse of chapter 2, and, and we see, again, this is the end of Habakkuk's kind of response and kind of what he's doing. And I think this verse gives us a great picture of just Habakkuk and what he's doing. He says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. So we get this picture of Habakkuk standing on a tower and just kind of looking out, watching and waiting for God's response like you would watch and wait for an enemy coming to conquer you. And for me, it was, it was really hard to understand what Habakkuk's motives are here, right? Because so, for me to say, well, I asked God a question, so I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to wait until he answers me. So I was just like, well, what is Habakkuk really doing here? What is he really trying to accomplish? Is he demanding an answer from God? And I don't think he is, based on some of the other things that he said and his view of God and how he calls him holy and righteous and eternal. He knows that he can't demand an answer from God. He can't make him answer him. Well, does he think he's entitled to an answer? Like, I asked this question. I'm your prophet. You're talking with me. I'm entitled to an answer to these questions. Once again, I don't think he does. Does he think he can force God to answer? I don't think he thinks that either. I think he does have to be pretty bold to say this, right? It takes a bit of confidence, a bit of boldness to say, I've asked God a question and I'm just going to stand right here and I'm going to wait until he answers me, right? Because God will answer. 
eventually. It just not, might, may not be the answer we want or in the time frame that we want it to be. But I think we can do actually exactly what Habakkuk is doing. Right? We can ask bold questions of God, just like he is doing. Right? Because we've seen all along, it's not a weak faith. It's not really a doubting faith. It's a reconciling of what he understands about God and how God is acting in the world. So I think we can have those same questions and approach God with confidence. And then we can wait, but wait patiently with faith for God to respond. Because we can't make God answer. We can't force him to answer. We can't stomp our feet and make him do what we want. We can't control God or force him to do anything. If we could, he's not God. This is a concept we talked about a couple of weeks ago. If you can imagine something greater than that, then that is God. It's not what you think it is. So if you can imagine that you can control God by doing these certain things, and you can imagine a God who can't be controlled by us, then that is God. So God is greater. He can't be controlled by us. He can't be forced to do anything. But we can ask him questions and wait patiently. And as we wrap up today, I want us to think about God's justice and how he works in our lives in one more way. Because I think a lot of our troubles in this area come from misunderstanding what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. Because we have all of these verses and all of these ideas about God wanting the best for us. And we think that means he wants us to be happy and successful. But God's goal for us isn't peace and it isn't prosperity. God's goal for us is faithfulness to him and his word. So when we have to wait, or when we struggle, or when we think God isn't doing what he should be doing, it's usually because we're looking for or we want things to be easier or to be successful, whatever your definition of successful may be. We want him to do that. And when he's not, that's when we get frustrated. But if we think of it as God's doing whatever he thinks is best for me to be faithful to him, for me to follow him, for me to grow in my faith, to grow closer to him, to have a stronger faith, then I think it changes the conversation and it makes things like this much easier to deal with. So when we're looking and trying to understand what God is doing, Let's remember that even if it seems unusual, even if we don't understand it, even if we wouldn't do it the same way or we don't expect him to do it the way he's doing it, it's for our good, which doesn't mean our peace, it doesn't mean our prosperity, but it's our sanctification to be more holy, to be more like him in our relationship with him. So God does things out of the ordinary and he challenges us and we struggle and we hurt, and we have pain, and we're confused, and all of these things. But all of those things God does in our lives, not so we can just be happy and have an easy life, but because so we can be faithful to him. So for Habakkuk, what we're seeing is God is using the Babylonians to judge the Israelites, not to take away their prosperity or their peace, but to remind them to be faithful to him because they've fallen away. So God does the same things in our lives. He corrects us. He judges us. He brings about justice. He brings about situations in our lives, not just to make our lives harder or to make them miserable, 
but to help us to be faithful to him, to trust in him more, to follow him more, to love him more, to value him above all things. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you again just for the example of Habakkuk, of just giving us an example, a way to, to boldly go before you, to ask hard questions, to try to reconcile right, what we know about you, what we believe about you, what we think you should be doing in the world, and what we actually see in the world, and what's going on, and how we fit those things together. But it's a reminder that you are not absent, you are not asleep, you still bring justice you're still working in the world. You're still bringing about your plans. You're still bringing people to come to know you. You're moving things towards your end. So in that, we hope that you would just help us to trust you. But as we trust you and we seek to follow you, help us especially not just to compare ourselves to others, to make ourselves feel better or to judge others so that we can be okay with what we're doing but actually just to seek your word and seek to follow your commands and to take every thought captive for you, meaning when we begin to compare ourselves or judge others, we immediately say, no, that's not what we're called to do. That's not even a biblical thing that I'm noticing and letting it go and dropping it and repenting and turning away. And just to trust you and understand that whatever you're doing in our lives, whether we're, things are going amazing right now or things are struggling or we're waiting for test results or we're dealing with the health scare or we're, families are hurting or whatever it may be, that all of the things that you do in our lives and around us are to make us faithful to you. And so help us just to keep that in mind as we go through that, it, it, yes, it may be hard. Yes, it may be difficult, but it's for our good. It's for our holiness. It's for us to be more like you, to trust in you more, to follow you more, to love you. And when we do that, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what you, what, what's happening because we know that with you, we are safe. With you, we are loved. With you, we are salvation. With you, we can be with you eternally. So help us to trust in you and follow you and trust in you above all other things. In your name I pray, amen.